workers from your slumber Arise, you prisoners of want That's right For reason in revolt now thunder Chains of hatred, greed, and fear <laughs> Welcome to Michael and Us, I'm Will Sloan Here as always with Luke Savage, welcome back everyone You know, I'm interested in cinema I'm interested in, in movies uh, Some some have said that I, I kind of fill that function on the podcast uh, Or that it's one of the functions I serve Yes, I, I have heard that said and one question that I often get, you know, from the listeners, you know, whenever we do a Q&A episode uh, uh, on the street, you know, uh, and, and no, not on the street, never on the street. Nobody cares. I'm just I'm just creating that framework. But uh, people often ask, uh, what is the future of movie going? What is the future of film exhibition? Is it all going online? Is it all going to streaming? Will there be movie theaters? And this is a question that people asked a lot during the pandemic. I was interested in this article in Variety called Desperate for Profits and Souring on Streaming, Hollywood Falls Back in Love with Movie Theaters. It begins by noting, you know, all the recent box office hits that have been released. Super uh, Mario Brothers. Well, actually, Air. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> both of those. The movies are back, folks. Both. I didn't say artistic successes. <laughs> I said box office hits. John Wick 4, Scream 4, not to mention a steady stream of more niche movies like uh, The Jesus Revolution, this uh, Kelsey Grammer Christian movie that's made over $50 million. Wait, 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 wait. I have not heard of that. Why are, why are we not running to the theater? right now to see whatever that is and make an episode about it we should because it's it's about a bunch of hippies who in the 60s who find jesus we should check oh. it out anyway it notes you know domestic box office stands at 2.3 billion dollars up 36.8 percent from the same period last year and an astounding 589.5 percent over 2021 can i can i ask as you know if you're the film guy i don't know some have said that i'm kind of the politics guy yeah so forgive me for asking what i suspect is a somewhat kind of inane and uninformed question but it's like have have box office successes like gone away like are there actually fewer of them have there been fewer of them than before well it took a long time to recover after the pandemic when movie theaters as we know them closed for many months right but i feel like that's kind of a special circumstance was there it was there a wider it was a, a sort of decline that was registered beyond the pandemic oh certainly there was a a long period when one movie after another one prestige adult drama after another seemed to fail while the ones that were successes were Marvel movies, superhero right. movies, right. which, by the way, the last two Marvel movies have underperformed. So, you know, who knows what that... I feel a great disturbance in the force. Who knows what that means in the future? And movie studios, it seems, in the initial period, were embracing a brand new model, a new streaming model, a subscription model, because who wants to share half your profits with movie theater owners? Not fun. But in this article, it says, in recent years, Hollywood had a serious case of Netflix envy, with studios opting to launch their own streaming services. To do that, they amassed a lot of red ink, building splashy streaming shows, and trunked the amount of time that movies screened exclusively in cinemas as a way of generating enthusiasm for the likes of Disney+, Paramount+, and HBO Max. But lately, Wall Street has soured on the economics of streaming, believing that the media conglomerates that run these services need to be as focused on making money as they are on attracting subscribers. Investors are not too thrilled about all the debt that's been built up either. That's made box office revenues an increasingly vital part of their overall financial health. This is fun to read about because it's like it's a variety article, but this is basically just like the financial times for like, you know, cinema. It's good to be reminded that behind all of this is just like, you know, a bunch of like Wall Street guys with like 
like their graphs and their, you know, formulas. Well, I wanted to read that paragraph in particular because for the last few years, it seemed a little nonsensical. It seemed, okay, you know, you've got these streaming services that are paying $30 million per episode of Stranger Things, you know? $200 million every week on a new movie, you know, insane sums of money that by definition cannot, you cannot make that money back. Like if you, if you get a subscription to Netflix, you don't pay a surcharge. Although I think some streamers have experimented with that option to little success. Yeah, I feel like Amazon Prime kind of does that and it doesn't really work. Like who's paying to see movies on Amazon Prime? I think Disney Plus has tried something similar. But, Forget but, about it. But Netflix hasn't. And the business model, it seems, was built on the idea that as long as you keep adding subscribers every month, it has the potential to make money. Uh-huh. Right, which is so funny because that's literally like every like Silicon Valley unicorn that collapses, every fucking, you know, billion dollar Icarus that flies too close to the sun. You know, this is always the backstory. It's like, look, uh, yeah, this was valued at like $30 billion and it literally lost money every single year. But investors kept fucking, they wouldn't put the brakes on the cash they were pumping in. The Saudis were pumping money in, whatever, uh, because there was some idea that, yeah, 10 years down the road, you know, once all the competition's been cleared, whatever. And if we just keep adding people, this will be profitable. I mean, it's like basically just everything is a pyramid scheme. <laughs> like, I guess, like, are we going to get soon? You know, if you buy a Disney Plus subscription, like it's cheaper if you also get two of your friends to have a Disney Plus subscription. And then it's like they get coupons where it's half as much for their friends to get a subscription. Well, the business model worked as long as they were adding subscribers. But then there was a recent month when Netflix actually their subscriber count went down from the previous month and their stock price plummeted by, I don't know, 10, 15, 20%, something very substantial. And then they introduced these new measures, like you can't share your password anymore. You know, maybe they could introduce a new measure that's not constantly raising the monthly subscription price. Yeah. Amen, brother. (laughs) Uh, And now it seems they've hit on a brand new business model, which is what if you played the movies in theaters and charged admission prices? (laughs) Like, what if you, what if... What if there was some place people would go, like a a community setting where people could gather and pay a fare to see a movie? Well, what if, what if you you exchanged money for goods and services? (laughs) So I find that very interesting. I'm excited to see how that goes. Magically, like, incurring debt month after month after month, billions and billions and billions in debt on the promise that maybe one day if enough subscribers keep being added until all 7 billion people in the world are subscribed. (laughs) Yeah, one big streaming platform. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. We got a great movie to discuss this week. A lot I want to talk about there. But I did want to bring up another story that I confess I'm kind of obsessed with, which is this Clarence Thomas, Harlan Crow uh, saga that continues to unfold. Well, I don't know how how closely you followed this, but I assume you heard about, like, you know, Harlan Crow's weird collection. Clar- of Clarence Thomas is friends with the guy who has all the, the Hitler memorabilia. Yeah, and it's so funny because so he has he has all this Hitler memorabilia. Like, he has these, like... 
like swastika embroidered like linens he's got a signed copy of Mein Kampf he's got a he's got multiple paintings like by Adolf Hitler but then like part of the initial sort of defense was like oh well I just collect all this iconography of sort of authoritarianism because I'm interested in history like I have a garden of evil that has like a statue of like I mean it has like statues of like Lenin and Che Guevara and stuff like that but what's really funny is the garden of evil does not include any Nazis so all the Nazis stuff is just like in the house so he's got a room where there's like a norman rockwell painting and then next to it is a is, is a hitler painting <laughs> which is awesome now there's a few things that are of interest to me in this story i mean i've been very amused by the chorus of like right-wing ghouls who've come out to defend this you had jonah goldberg front of the show tweeting you know harlan crow is a deeply honorable decent and patriotic person that basically is talking about the garden of evil and he says you know it represents an attempt to commemorate the horrors of the 20th century in the spirit of never again again you know i don't i don't really find that like commensurate uh, with like like why why is there no hitler stuff in the garden of evil <laughs> like why is it in the house i like a few hours later uh goldberg like he he tweeted again and this seemed like one of those things where someone tweets and they're just like talking to themselves he was like my conscience is clear harlan crow is a good man and the farthest thing from a nazi uh, there was a whole bunch of other things like this david french you know the skull scientist charles murray etc and uh, kudos to andrew perez at the lever who did some great reporting on all the institutional connections uh, that bind these people. So, you know, you have stuff like, well, uh, Crow's wife, uh, I think her name's Kathy, sits on the board of the Manhattan Institute, which, you know, lobbies the Supreme Court. You know, there was another guy, I'm forgetting who it was, who defended Harlan Crow on the grounds that when the ProPublica story first broke by saying, like, look, I mean, this is just friends hanging out. This has nothing to do with, like, you know, the Supreme Court. And it's like, well, yeah, his wife literally sits on the board of, a, of an organization, like conservative legal organization that lobbies the Supreme Court. You know, Crow himself is an investor in the Dispatch, which Jonah Goldberg edits. Jonah Goldberg is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Crow sits on its board of trustees. You know, um, I think Crow funded a bunch of National Review debate forums. You know, David French, I almost said David from David French, you know, has a relationship with National Review. Charles Murray is, you know, he's been affiliated for a long time with the American Enterprise Institute. And for some reason, he's dedicated a bunch of his uh, weird, awful books to Harlan Crow, which is very funny. So you can find that reporting from Andrew Perez in The Lever. Support The Lever if you're not already. They're doing fantastic work. Now, I find this whole story interesting for a few reasons. I mean, I do think it's emblematic of kind of the way that I think the conservative movement really works. I mean, if people are looking, I mean, it's possible there's still like a smoking gun in this Clarence Thomas story, like there actually is some kind of quid pro quo. But I don't really see that as what's happening in all of this. Like the way that what's called the conservative movement works is basically you have like a handful of absolutely unfathomably wealthy people like Harlan Crow is like a the heir to a real estate fortune. And they just sort of like pump money into various like think tanks, you know, institutes, you know, that kind of stuff. And I don't think they tend to exercise like that much like direct control over it because like they don't need to. When you have such a small number of funders, like basically what they're doing is exercising soft power. You know, it, you know, having that kind of money allows you to buy access to, you know, in this case, a Supreme Court justice. 
it allows you to just, you know, have him be part of your elite social club. All these conservatives that like, you know, work for these magazines that like have very small readerships and like are not actually, I think, meaningfully connected to like most people who actually vote for the Republican Party. I feel like 2016 kind of showed that like all of this machinery, like if Trump could just bypass it so effortlessly, whatever function it's serving, it's not a popular function. What it is, is it's kind of like an institutional layer that kind of has to be there because otherwise all you'd have like without that you just have a bunch of billionaires (laughs) like like literally the conservative movement would be just like a bunch of shadowy billionaires so there has to be some kind of institutional layer that creates like the respectability that generates the you know ideas the policy papers that you know stewards what calls itself you know the conservative tradition or whatever so that I think is the broader takeaway vis-a-vis this story. But I do want to just return before we uh, go on to our movie for this week to the question of this kind of Nazi memorabilia. Because I'm actually just like very interested in what like the psychology of like being a, the heir to a, like a right wing heir to a real estate fortune and I don't know, having all this Hitler shit in your house. Amusingly, by the way, I feel like this hasn't got as much traction, but you know, Hakeem Jeffries, the new Democratic House leader, it turned out like, like did an event at Harlan Crow's like house. So the Democratic House leader did an event at the like right wing billionaire, like his house surrounded by all this Nazi memorabilia. Well, I've heard it suggested on Chapo this week that there is nothing behind it. It's just emptiness. It's just the ability to own something that somebody as famous as Hitler once had. I think there are a few possible readings of this. I mean, I think one reading is that if you're on the right, you know, you actually have like you know, a, a complicated relationship with fascism, uh, with classical fascism, and you maybe even view it as something like that was a good idea that was taken too far. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the sort of reading of, of this is like, yeah, you're you, when you become this wealthy, you just kind of collect these fetish objects. And for, you know, for Harlan Crow, yeah, they're like almost depoliticized. They're kind of like the artifacts in that sort of odd property that Clive Owen visits in the Battersea Power Station at the beginning of Children of men, you know, where the guy has like the, you know, Picasso's Guernica and like Michelangelo's David, you know, the pig from the cover of Pink Floyd's Animals, that kind of stuff. But someone who I think weighed in on this very well, very insightfully was the uh, historian Gabriel Wanant. I just want to read a few tweets of his. He said, it's not credible to say Crow secretly admires figures whose icons he collects. He's got Mao in there too. Rather, it's that he has no real appreciation for the meaning of these histories. If he did, he wouldn't live among them. No Jew has swastikas at home to remind us. What he's doing is not declaring his affiliation, but rather trying to reduce these histories to something he can own, trivializing them by making them into almost literal hobby horses. By reducing them to commodities, the thing he particularly does is make them indistinct, which he says explicitly is the point. Mass murder, totalitarianism, whatever. Those are in quotes. Generic forms of evil without actual history, a fairly literal form of fetishism. And I have to say, uh, you know, I've been following the story since it broke, and I think I'm coming around to that reading. Like, I think, obviously, there has to be some political dimension to a rich guy on the right having this kind of paraphernalia in his house. But I think Gabriel's reading of it is a very intelligent one. And I think on some level, it really is that stupid. It's this is your ruling class on the end of history. Like just everything is a commodity. Nothing has any history. Everything is post-historical. Like these things are just generic signifiers, which this guy happens to be able to hoard because he inherited a real estate fortune. And, you know, he keeps them around as regalia while he invites like nerds from various institutes to come and debate whether virtue is in decline or whatever else they do. Before we 
get to the movie, I just want to note that, yes, we do have a Patreon. Possibly you've heard about it. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. Five Yankee dollars a month for a whole extra episode every week. And I bring it up now in particular because this week on the Patreon episode, we will be discussing the most important political film of our time. Yeah. The, the And when I say that, you know I'm going to be funny. <laughs> I'm going to say something that's not. What is the movie, Will? The brand new film, Super Mario Brothers. Yes, the new (laughs) Super Mario cartoon movie. Yeah, if you subscribe for five bucks a month, you can get a whole extra episode a week. So twice as much content at the Al Gore tier. $10 a month for the Super Delegate tier allows you to nominate movies and vote on them with other Super Delegates. So you can actually make us watch stuff. You can punish us. We also periodically put bonus content on there. If you subscribe now, you can hear uh, my recent conversation with Will Summer of the Daily Beast and the Fever Dreams podcast uh, about his new book on QAnon, Trust the Plan. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. Try it out. But on this episode, we are talking about the education of an idealist. We are talking about a couple who discover things that work better in theory than practice, whether it be communism or ethical non-monogamy. Yes, that's right. Luke is rolling his eyes. He is so disgusted with what I just said. Folks, I'm only kidding. The ethical non-monogamists in question are Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton, portraying John Silas, Jack Reed, and Louise Bryant in Beatty's classic 1981 film, Reds. Jack dreams that he can hustle the American working man, whose one dream is to be rich enough not to have to work, into a revolution led by his party. Is the Socialist Party prepared to take a position on the draft or not? You dream that if you discuss the revolution with a man before you go to bed with him, it'll be missionary work rather than sex. The officer, these men have the legal right to assemble. What the hell are you doing? Me? I write. You write? Uh-huh. Uh-uh. You wrong. I'd rather be with a fighter who wants to change the world than a critic who wants to mourn it. Well, the place to be now is Russia. You don't have to tell me what's happening in Russia. I read the papers. Well, come with me. Fort Jewin will join you in revolution. Well, Will segued into that maybe a little differently than I would. He's he's dripping with contempt <laughs> for me right now, but that's okay. It's all right. I'm just not sure how it's going to pair with uh, what I'm about to read. I mean, we are discussing Warren Beatty's 1981 film Reds on this episode. Thank you to our superdelegates for nominating this one. Superdelegates have nominated a few movies that are kind of rough to punish us, but for the most part, honestly, they've had pretty good taste. And uh, this is one of the many weeks where I've been uh, grateful for their selection. I love this movie. Uh, this was my third or possibly even fourth time seeing it. Uh, and it's amazing it's taken us this long. Crazy. You know? And it, it <laughs> I gotta say, just in terms of the viewing experience, uh, it it hit me hard this time. That's interesting. Before we get into the movie or kind of any of the related subject matter, I did just want to read from the first chapter of a book I've been reading. This was a book that uh, deservedly had a big moment a few years ago, Vivian Gornick's The Romance of American Communism, uh, which was blurbed, among other people, by Corey Robin, who uh, rightly characterizes it, I think, as the best book ever written about the inner life of socialists. Now, the reason I want to read this is because one of the things I think this movie 
movie does really well, and which you know somehow does within the context of a big Hollywood studio film, is that it genuinely understands and respects the spirit of the October Revolution and of the you know people all around the world, but particularly the United States, who drew inspiration from it and supported it. A book I read earlier this year, uh, which I which I really enjoyed, and which you know I don't think is a very well known book because it's a Canadian book. I'm hoping to write about it soon. Um, but there's a wonderful book by the late Canadian socialist James Laxer called Red Diaper Baby, A Boyhood in the Age of McCarthyism. And uh, Laxer's memoir is a wonderful portrait and a kind of, I don't know, personal psychological study of his childhood where, you know, both his parents were members of the uh, Communist Party of Canada. His dad was a, you know, a full-time paid organizer for the Communist Party later on the Central Committee. Both his parents, like Vivian Gornick's family, uh, left the party in 1956 after the secret speech. And one of the things that Laxer's book does really well is explain why this political project and the vision that it offered people was so attractive. I just want to read from now the beginning of the Romance of American Communism, probably one of uh, my favorite uh, first couple pages of a book I've read for quite some time. Vivian Gornick writes, Before I knew that I was Jewish or a girl, I knew that I was a member of the working class. At a time when I had not yet grasped the significance of the fact that in my house English was a second language, or that I wore dresses while my brother wore pants, I knew, and I knew it was important to know, that Papa worked hard all day long. One of my strongest memories of early childhood is that no matter what we were doing, my mother and I, everything in our Bronx apartment stopped dead at 4.30 in the afternoon and she began cooking supper. If I ever questioned this practice or complained or demanded that we continue what we were doing, my mother, whose manner was generally frantic and uncontrolled, would answer with a sudden dignity that stopped me cold. Papa works hard all day long. When he comes home, his supper must be on the table. Papa works hard all day long. Those words in my mother's mouth spoke volumes, and from the age of reason on, I absorbed their complex message. The words stirred in me, almost from the first time I heard them, an extraordinary resonance, one whose range was wide enough to compel my emotional attention throughout my subsequent life. To begin with, the words communicated pain and difficulty. My childish heart ached for my gentle father. The pain was frightening, and even as it began to flow inside me, like a liquid turning to a solid, I felt myself go numb. This emotion was awesome. It induced in me the sense of some mysterious force working on our lives, some force in which we were all caught, suspended, puzzled, moving blind. At the very same time, the mere articulation of the words in my mother's mouth produced a peculiar and relieving focus against the murkiness of that mysterious force, a focus which told me where and who I was. I was the daughter of Papa who worked hard all day long. Finally, the words said, we are all of us here in this house vitally connected to the fact that Papa works hard all day long. We pay attention to and respect that fact. We make common cause with it. This last, this oneness, this solidarity produced in me pride and excitement. It dissolved the numbness and transformed the pain back into a moving, stirring, agitating element, something to be understood and responded to, something to be dealt with and struggled against. Now, that passage is only tangentially connected to the movie, but I think it sets the stage nicely, even though what Vivian Gornick is describing happened sometime after the film is set. Anyway, with that to set us up, uh, let's get into Reds. Well, Warren Beatty stars as John Reed, the author of 10 Days That Shook the World. He was a radical journalist and politician who was on the ground in Russia during the 1917 revolution. 10 Days That Shook the World is arguably the most important English language primary source document 
document about the Russian Revolution. The film is a sweeping love story about his relationship with Louise Bryant, who he meets in the early scenes in Portland, Oregon. She's a liberal journalist, and she encounters him. Uh, She's doing an interview with him about his revolutionary politics. He's making an appearance at, I believe it's called the Liberal Club of Portland. (laughs) And when the subject turns to the First World War, he blows everyone's minds, including hers, by suggesting that America should not enter the war and that it's a war being fought by England and France and Germany over money. Ideas like these are so impactful to Louise Bryant that she leaves her stifling bourgeois patriarchal life in Portland and joins him in Greenwich Village, which in the 1910s is this hub of both political and artistic radical thought. We encounter the people in John Reed's circle at this time, including Max Eastman, played by Edward Herman, Eugene O'Neill, played uh, quite brilliantly by Jack Nicholson. (laughs) Yeah, Eugene O'Neill, the American playwright. And Emma Goldman, the anarchist writer, played by Maureen Stapleton, among others. Yeah, a little bit of trivia. Did you know Emma Goldman actually died uh, right here in Toronto? Really? What brought her here? You know, I don't actually know. Uh, I think, well, I think just exile from the United States. I don't think I'd recognized uh, Maureen Stapleton before, but because we watched Interiors recently, I remembered that she's actually the, like, nice woman who marries the dad in that movie. And I'm just glad that she also got to play Emma Goldman. In the early scenes, in addition to his writing, John Reed is active in the union movement across the United States, traveling from town to town and working with other leftist organizers to try to unionize industrial workers and meeting a great deal of opposition. He is active in Democratic Party politics from the left. He travels to the 1916 convention to support Woodrow Wilson, who he regards with great suspicion as a liberal who will bring the United States into the war. But since his stated position is against the war, he pragmatically supports Wilson on the grounds that this will buy us some time to build the anti-war movement. The movie takes left politics seriously, but I do think it's a romance first and foremost. And a lot of the first half of the movie is spent with John Reed leaving Louise Bryant behind, traveling the country, and and much of it is about her affair with Eugene O'Neill. O'Neill appears at several important junctures in the film. He represents a different life that she could have, a more settled life, certainly an engaged life, not like the one that she left behind in Portland, but a more settled life that doesn't require sacrifice. O'Neill ultimately, when we leave him in the film, regards John Reed's activism with skepticism. Well, that's right. I mean, O'Neill represents a few different things. He represents, as you said, the possibility of just, yeah, more stable and, and traditional life. But he also represents a very different and I think, you know, far more kind of misanthropic worldview. Like there's a, you know, it's jumping ahead a bit, but there's the scene later where, you know, she confronts him and he's basically just, you know, insulting the way that, you know, she and Jack Reed live their lives. And and she replies, if you'd been to Russia, you'd never be cynical about anything again. You'd have seen ordinary people transformed. To which he says, why are you here then? And then she and then she walks out. And, you know, this is one of the things that I think is so incredible about this movie. You know, this is a point that in the write up for Jacobin that was published in 2021 on Reds by Jim Poe. One of the things Jim Poe points out is just how extraordinary it is that, you know, this 
Hollywood studio film that is giving the Hollywood studio film treatment to the Russian Revolution, and which, you know, I think genuinely, as I said off the top, uh, does respect, you know, the the spirit of, you know, what people found attractive about this and, and celebrates it. And I think that even by the end of the film, when Bryant and Reed have become disillusioned with the Soviet leadership and Emma Goldman, too, and lots of other people, the film hasn't really let go of that. I think that's extraordinary. Yeah, this is actually something I want to talk about because, you know, for years, I remembered this movie as being, oh, isn't it amazing that Beatty pulled this off? That, you know, in Reagan's first year in office, he convinced Paramount to spend $32 million in 1981 dollars on this movie where the heroes are American communists. You know, how did he do that? And this isn't a criticism of the film, but I think I see more clearly how that was possible. I mean, everything we see in this movie is in the past tense. You know, it's not a Peter Watkins movie. It's not the sort of movie I think, maybe you'll disagree, but it doesn't strike me as the kind of movie that is seeking to inspire like revolutionary action in the audience today. I don't think it's really seeking to inspire us to like look at our surroundings and spot the sorts of oppressions that we're feeling in our daily lives right now that, you know, those industrial workers back in 1916 felt. I think the reason it was possible, and again, this is not a criticism, that Beatty could screen this movie in the Reagan White House, and presumably, you know, Reagan probably enjoyed it, probably gave him a hearty handshake afterwards, is that it's a past tense movie. The movie is framed around documentary interviews with what they're called the witnesses, people from the time, who include such figures as Henry Miller and George Jessel, as well as political figures from across the spectrum, remembering this. Ultimately, the second half of the the movie is, you know, uh, as I said, like the education of this idealist. He sees the revolution fail. The revolution was a beautiful dream that didn't work. And I think that's why it was possible for this movie to be made. Not only is it not a Peter Watkins movie, but it's also not Bullworth, you know, which is a very different kind of right. Warren Beatty, movie. War, Warren Beatty's other great epic film about <laughs> revolutionary politics. But I mean, you know, Bullworth is a movie, you know, about a Clintonite Democrat who's, you know, rapping about how the Clintonite Democrats have sold out all their constituencies. You know, let me hear that dirty word, socialism. I mean, that's another movie kind of about the defeat of the left as well, but it's a it's a different, it's a present tense one. You, you can call a single payer a Canadian way. Only socialized medicine will ever save the day. Come on now, let me hear that dirty word. Socialism! Well, I think I do have a somewhat different reading of the film. I mean, as for it being screened in the Reagan White House, I mean, look, you and I actually sat down. We, we this is we, interesting. We, well, we, we well, Will and I, yeah. Will and I did it. We did a Patreon. Uh, I think it was a bonus, or maybe it was just in one of our regular Patreon episodes a couple months ago, where you know we sat down and we looked at various films that you know various presidents had uh, had screened in the White House. And I think after we turned the mics off, for some reason, we never got to Reagan. And then we looked at Reagan's, and we're like. Oh man, he had pretty good taste in film. These are way better than like Bill Clinton's movies or George Bush's. Bill Clinton's taste is pretty lowbrow, honestly. But Reagan, I mean, what can you say about the Reagan guy? Reagan was a Hollywood guy. Yeah. He liked good movies. And, and so and... it's funny when you look at the list of movies he screened in the White House. He screened a lot, and every year he's watching every Woody Allen movie that comes out, <laughs> like like movies that are culturally encoded as liberal. Yeah, and he's right. just watching them and enjoying them. Again, he's 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 a Hollywood guy. So that would honestly be my explanation for this movie. I think you have to see this movie 
movie in a few very specific lights. I think you have to see it against the backdrop of the virulent anti-communism that defined American politics basically from like the 1920s on. You can even go back to like 1913. And then, you know, during the First World War when, you know, various, you know, members of the Socialist Party were locked up for opposing the war. Anti-communism is, you know, one of the structuring features of American politics and then has a big renaissance in the post-war era and then has another renaissance in the Reagan era. To make a film, I mean, I think it's in, I agree that it's in the past tense, but to me, that's only in the sense that it's a historical drama. But the whole second half of the movie is, you know, John Reed finds out that the dream of communism or the dream of left politics have been corrupted by the Bolsheviks who have turned it into totalitarianism. And I think Reagan is sitting in the White House watching this and saying, yeah, that's what happens. You know, that's what happens when you mess around with this stupid bullshit. And John Reed, you just found out. I think that's what Reagan's thinking. That's what makes it palatable to him. Well, again, I don't know about that. I mean, the the right wing uh, commentary on this film that I could find is not positive. So, <laughs> yeah, so, like in the National Review, the the review I found uh, says, you know, the, basically the sort of top line take is never exactly boring, sometimes entertaining. Reds is frequently irritating and finally disappointing. There's another review in Commentary. Actually, this one is funny because the two takes are. I heard Commentary and Dissent joined <laughs> and became dysentery. <laughs> this one, the two takes are, you know, one, the film obscures apparently the fact that Reed and Bryant are communists, which like I don't really. Think I, it does I don't that. think it does. And no. then, and then secondly, <laughs> he he was mad. This was a, a writer called Richard Grenier and he's mad that uh, the film exaggerates Brian's own accomplishments as a journalist <laughs> which is very funny but so I don't know I, I see it in the context of it being a historical drama it's in the past tense for that reason I don't think it ever lets go of the idea that revolutionary politics are worth celebrating in some fashion that the things that motivate them are genuine and the thing is I think if you're a virulent anti-communist you don't think that you think that this impulse that there's something defective about it like inherently it's not that this was like a good thing that was hijacked or went uh, awry it's that this was a bonfire of enthusiasm that should have been suppressed by the czar immediately well, like yeah. the Reaganite version of this film is like an alternative history where the white you know the white armies like sweep back into Moscow and Petrograd and restore the czar to his rightful place I mean yeah. I would yeah I, I would never want to suggest that this is a reactionary movie because it's certainly not it's about as left wing as you know a mega budget Hollywood movie has ever gotten I would I would love you know Warren if you're listening I'd love to talk to you about politics because I would be very interested you know we know he is at the very least a left liberal. He's a lifelong Democrat. I yeah, mean, a know, lifelong he's Democrat. Done, he was doing when he was like a young guy. He was doing like fundraisers. He, for the he Democratic was campaigning Party. for McGovern, and I know you know Bill Clinton's a friend. He spoke at his uh, AFI tribute. Uh, he he's also John McCain's pallbearer. <laughs> Did you know that about Beatty? I forgot. He was one that. of John McCain's pallbearers, which I, you know, I think if you make Bullworth, you're entitled to be John McCain's and, pallbearer, and you're, and you're entitled to watch the Oscar for Best Picture. Uh, yeah, that's all fine. I would love to, I, you know, if if you told me that Beatty was a Bernie guy in 2016, I'd believe you. But then if you told me that he hosted a fundraiser for Joe Biden in 2020, I'd also believe you because mm -hmm. I think he could be either one of those guys. I think that that's most Hollywood liberals, to yeah, be honest. But he is different from most Hollywood liberals because as you say he actually does take this stuff seriously he's actually done the reading he knows the history he made a whole fucking movie about John Reed and he mm -hmm. cares deeply about it and I would be interested in hearing like 
if when Bernie came along, if he said like, yes, this is what Bullworth foretold. Like, this is what I'd like. Or is he the kind of guy who's like, well, okay, this stuff could never actually happen. But like, what if it could? And that's what Bullworth's about. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm just curious. <laughs> Something else that I think is important, which of course we've mentioned already, is that, you know, the source material for this is John Reed's book. And the book is a very serious account of the Russian Revolution. It's a firsthand account. I read it in full some years ago. Uh, it is really wonderfully done. I mean, interestingly, John Reed is one of just a handful of Americans to be buried. I'm forgetting the, the name of the mausoleum or, or cemetery. But, you know, he was given a very high honor in 1920 when he died at a, at a quite young age, um, despite the fact that he had soured on the Soviet leadership at that time. And as I understand it, the first edition of the book in the uh, English-speaking world was put out by the Communist Party of Great Britain in the 1920s. And it actually has an introduction. I mean, it's really just a paragraph written by none other than uh, Vladimir Lenin. He writes, with the greatest interest and with never slackening attention, I read John Reed's book, 10 Days That Shook the World. Unreservedly do I recommend it to the workers of the world. Here is a book which I should like to see published in millions of copies and translated into all languages. It gives a truthful and most vivid exposition of the events so significant to the comprehension of what really is the proletarian revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat. These problems are widely discussed, but before one can accept or reject these ideas, one must fully understand the full significance of such a decision. John Reed's book will undoubtedly help to clear this question, which is the fundamental problem of the universal workers' movement. So Lenin liked this book. Real, hilariously, as I understand it, the book remained kind of like a celebrated thing, and John Reed remained a celebrated figure in the official like state-sanctioned like lore of the revolution through the Stalinist period. However, there is a small problem. Uh, the hero of John Reed's account, really is Trotsky, which, as you can imagine, was a problem for Joseph Stalin, who, as far as I can tell, is mentioned exactly once in the book, because, like, he didn't he didn't do anything. Uh, like, Lenin was the intellectual, and Trotsky was the organizer, which is how they're portrayed in both the book and the film. And, you know, Stalin is mentioned once in the book, and it's literally just when they're, like, I for, I'm butchering the historical details, but they were just voting to create, like, a committee, or he was given a cabinet post or something like that, or he's given a party position. It's a single mention of Joseph Stalin that I could find. So yeah, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a problem to kind of keep this book canonized and like have to be like, yeah, and, and Trotsky never existed. Mm -hmm. We can turn back to the movie in a second, but uh, I do just want to say a few things about the book. I mean, it really is a wonderful read. It's wonderfully detailed. Reed says in the preface, this book is a slice of intensified history, history as I saw it. It does not pretend to be anything but a detailed account of the November Revolution when the Bolsheviki at the head of the workers and soldiers seized the state power of Russia and placed it in the hands of the Soviets. He concludes his introduction, uh, signed New York, 1st of January, 1919. In the struggle, my sympathies were not neutral, but in telling the story of those great days, I have tried to see events with the eye of a conscientious reporter interested in setting down the truth. And I think that's largely true. There is an introduction that comes with my edition, which was written some decades later by the British historian A.J.P. Taylor. He celebrates the book, A.J.P. Taylor being somebody who was uh, initially a communist himself and then later a lifelong member of the Labour Party. But one of the things he notes is that Reed could only capture the things that he saw. And so the book, like the film, 
um, which of course has the book as its source material, is just kind of brimming with effervescent uh, energy. Like everything is sort of bubbling all the time. And, you know, it's it's conveyed really wonderfully in Reed's vivid prose. You know, one of my favorite paragraphs in the book comes in a chapter called The Committee for Salvation. And Reed writes, but the eddies of insurrection were spreading through Russia with a swiftness surpassing any human agency. Helling's force Soviet passed resolutions of support. Kiev Bolsheviki captured the arsenal in the telegraph station, only to be driven out by the delegates of the Congress of Cossacks, which happened to be meeting there. In Kazan, a military revolutionary committee arrested the local garrison staff and the commissar of the provisional government. Various other events unfold in this light. He continues, Everywhere the same thing happened. The common soldiers and the industrial workers supported the Soviets by a vast majority. The officers, yunkers, and the middle class generally were on the side of the government, as were the bourgeois cadets and the moderate socialist parties. In all these towns sprang up committees for salvation of country and revolution, arming for civil war. Vast Russia was in a state of solution. As long ago as 1905, the process had begun. The March Revolution had merely hastened it, and giving birth to a sort of forecast of the new order had ended by merely perpetuating the hollow structure of the old regime. Now, however, the Bolsheviki in one night had dissipated it as one blows away smoke. Old Russia was no more. Human society flowed molten in primal heat, and from the tossing sea of flame was emerging the class struggle, stark and pitiless, and the fragile, slowly cooling crust of new planets. So, you know, pretty incredible passage. The book, uh, you know, is, is filled with that kind of stuff, as well as a lot of just uh, journalistic detail. And A.G.P. Taylor, in his introduction, very much celebrates that. But he does inject a little bit of nuance, which I think is important. You know, he notes a few places where Reed, because he couldn't be ever at once, or actually because he just got a little bit too excited, perhaps because he was a little bit too embedded in the subject, gets carried away. He, he offers dates for meetings that, as far as uh, one can tell, didn't actually happen, or he's mashing together several meetings. You know, these mistakes, to some extent, are, are inevitable because, yeah, it's a big place, and things were kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the streetcars weren't working particularly well in Petrograd at this time. You know, he couldn't be everywhere at once. And the result is a very exciting and, you know, I think in many ways, you know, vivid and, and accurate account. Nonetheless, uh, the thing that it cannot capture is how much kind of banality and boredom sort of coexisted with all of this. And I just want to read a little bit from A.G.B. Taylor's introduction here. He says, 7th of November is the central point of Reed's narrative. Himself tense and excited, he did not perhaps stress enough the small scale of the dramatic events he recounted. This was not a rising of the masses as the March Revolution and the July days had been, it was a conflict between two small groups, neither of which had much taste for fighting. Kerensky, so that's the head of the provisional government, Kerensky had no regular troops, only 2,000 cadets. The Soviet claimed to control 10,000 Red Guards, middle-aged factory workers, but few of them turned out for the fighting. A thousand sailors came up from the naval base at Kronstadt. One sailor was killed when his rifle went off in his hands. Four Red Guards and one sailor were killed by stray bullets. That was the total death toll on this historic day. Most people in Petrograd did not even know that a revolution was taking place. The trams were running, the fashionable restaurants were crowded, the theaters were crowded, and Shiliapin was singing at the opera. The Red Guards kept away from the smart quarter or walked modestly in the gutter. The Revolutionary Military Committee had planned desperate resistance against a fierce attack by the provisional government. 
there was no such attack. Kerensky fled early in the day, protected by the Stars and Stripes, an anticipation, perhaps, of the much later Cold War. The other members of the provisional government sat helplessly in the Winter Palace. Red Guards took over the post office and the principal government buildings, adhering strictly to program. They did not reach the Winter Palace until 6 in the evening. Even then, they did not attack at all that seriously. Red Guards filtered in through the kitchen entrance and took over the palace without a struggle. At 2.25 a.m. on the morning of 8th of November, Antonov, a member of the military revolutionary committee broke into the room where the provisional government was still sitting and shouted in the name of the military revolutionary committee i declare you all under arrest such was the end of old russia so the introduction is useful uh, for a number of reasons because you know reading this book you know it the prose are so vivid and the account is so kind of effervescent it's easy to get carried away and i do think kind of in his lesser moments this happened to read somewhat but nonetheless the thing that he captures so well and the thing that the movie i think captures so beautifully is just the kind of bubbling uh, insurrectionary energy of the october revolution are you really that cynical or are you angry with me I'm really that cynical. Why would I be angry with you? Gene, if you'd been to Russia, you'd never be cynical about anything again. You would have seen people transformed, ordinary Louise, people. something it's in like... me tightens when an American intellectual's eyes shine and they start to talk to me about the Russian people. Wait. Something in me says, watch it. A new version of Irish Catholicism is being offered for your faith. And I wonder why a lovely wife like Louise Reed, who's just seen the brave new world, is sitting around with a cynical bastard like me, instead of trotting all over Russia with her idealistic husband. It's uh, almost worth being converted. Well, I was wrong to come. The film has an intermission, I guess it's halfway through, but the, the montage before that, uh, which captures Reed, uh, there's a point in the film, which if you've seen it, you'll know exactly the scene I'm talking about, where he realizes that he's not just covering this as a journalist, he's intimately connected to it. And that sequence, I think, is probably one of my favorite sequences in a film ever. And this time, for whatever reason, it just absolutely slayed me. Yeah, you texted me saying how, how oh. much that montage hit, and um, I didn't want to text back yeah but wait till, wait till you see what happens in the second half the thing is i mean it just the, the second half never bothered me because yeah. it's just it's just a fairly accurate account of what actually happened and that doesn't you know disturb me because i'm able to extricate everything that happens in the you know in the rest of the movie from that and you know because i am a socialist and i don't think that the impulse that you know john reed and louise bryant and you know millions of other people around the world felt i don't think that there's something inherently defective about it i think that, Nor do I. I hasten to add. <laughs> I think yeah. Will is uh, Will is the Reaganite voice on this <laughs> podcast as ever. Um, like I think the analysis that these people had of the particular historical uh, situation was wrong. Lenin's analysis of the situation was wrong. Like he thought this was a catalyzing event, but you know it was Stalin who later clumsily made up the idea of like socialism in one country. Like Lenin thought that if the Bolsheviks seized control of the Russian state and they withdrew from the war, that it would cause the working classes of other countries, including Germany, to rise up and that, you know, then there would be world revolution. And that obviously didn't happen. I mean, there was the, you know, the failed revolution in Germany that was brutally suppressed in 1919. But I mean, it's just a historical truism, I think, uh, at this point that, you know, the, re the reading of the situation was wrong. The analysis was incorrect. But to me, that's completely independent of the original impulse that may have preceded it. And to me, this film has a lot of respect and reverence for that impulse, even though it was made by a Hollywood 
Hollywood liberal like Warren Beatty. I, I hasten to add that I also respect and, and admire that impulse. I just <laughs> I felt the specter of doom in the second half hanging over it a little more than you did. Well, I mean, I, I think that in, in the context of the film, it is I mean, it's devastating. It, yeah. I think the, it film, is. It the is. film is a tragedy. And of course, it's a tragic love story as well. You were telling me before we recorded that you were moved by the love story like never before. I, you know, it's funny because I mean, I've seen this film a number of times and I and so I remembered it very well. But yeah, I mean, I'd forgotten how this film is paced. I forgot that like a huge part of like, like, I mean, the first half of the film is basically like a kind of chamber drama that has to do with, you know, the romance between, you know, Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton, uh, but also the romance between Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson. I don't actually know how to kind of like intellectualize this. I just found, I guess, sometimes movies are different upon different viewings, even if they're very familiar. And for some reason, I guess in the past when I watched this movie, the romance plot always seemed kind of like a B story. And on in this viewing, I saw it as intimately bound up with everything that was happening. Oh, totally. Uh, in the because film. all three of those characters choose a path. Mm-hmm. You know, their romantic destinies are in harmony with their political destinies. Yeah, I mean, when Diane Keaton goes to Finland because she finds out, sorry, when Louise Bryant goes to Finland because she finds out that Jack Reed has been imprisoned by the white government in Finland while trying to escape the USSR. I mean, and then she gets there and he's already been released as part of a prisoner exchange. I mean, that's devastating. The fact that in the second half of the movie, just the kind of frustration builds when you, you like when Jack Reed is back in the United States and they're trying to set up, you know, the left slate sweeps the national executive, nearly wins all of the seats in the Socialist Party, and then they're not allowed to take their seats. And then instead of having like a united front against that, like they immediately split. And, you know, in this really important historical moment, they're just having like the most pedantic sectarian debates imaginable. Yeah, we didn't mention the uh, sectarian division that happens between Paul Servino as Louis Freyna and uh, Warren Beatty as Reed representing the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front respectively. Yeah, and it's funny. And then when Jack Reed, you know, they vote for, you know, his half of the sectarian split, like votes after not much deliberation to send him to the Soviet Union to like, let's get the common turn to recognize our group. And then that that whole sequence is like a mixture of sort of tragic comedy and also just kind of frustration because, yeah, just the banality of these meetings where he's trying to convince them. I mean, to their credit, the Soviet leadership just like has the same attitude that Louise Bryan expresses, where it's just like, literally, why have two separate parties and get the Comintern to recognize, like just merge the two parties. And that's what the Comintern recommended. But then Reed gets into this really convoluted debate with the Bolshevik Central Committee, because they have this idea that they're going to do like entryism into the AFL, the American Federation of Labor. And like, he just knows that that's a fool's errand, doesn't think it's like a good use of time and resources. And, you know, I don't know, these scenes to me are like very funny because I actually think in a weird way, I mean, there's different ways you can read these scenes. Like, I guess for the Jack Reed character, like they're kind of not really taking him seriously. Like he's this foreign socialist and they're just kind of trying to get him to toe the party line. On the other hand, watching these scenes again, I was kind of struck by like, why are they even giving him all this time to like air this? Like, this is a pretty minor issue in the grand scheme of what this committee has to think about. And you're thinking, you're thinking of annoying meetings that you've been to in the past where the people's microphone has had to acknowledge everybody's yeah, complaints. Yeah, this is more of a comment than a question. <laughs> um, of course, towards the end of the film, the political and romance plots you know, are finally bound together in this remarkable sequence where Jack Reed goes to the Baku Congress 
where his translation gets butchered by the dastardly comrade Zinoviev. And they're in what may have been uh, the state of Georgia at the time, I guess, is uh, modern day Azerbaijan. And basically, yeah, in the in the translation, they've made it an appeal to like Muslims to rise up against the, you know, the infidels. And yeah, Jack Reed is not very happy about this. But then just as he's having it out with comrade Zinoviev, the white armies attack the train in just, I mean, can this guy direct an action sequence or what? Yeah, Incredible. Yeah. And then there's this remarkable scene which again, like I almost feel embarrassed to just like put this on record, but I'd seen this scene like a million times. But the scene where Louise Bryant, you know, having missed Reed in Finland and then had to travel all the way back to Petrograd, when she looks for him on the train, which just like has all these, you know, battle scars and broken windows and stuff, and it looks like he's not going to reappear. And then he's the like the last person at the other end of the train and they look at each other across the platform. Maybe that's a political feeling in some way. Or maybe that's just the magic of the movie. Maybe, maybe, but... we're, maybe we're just dealing with a human being here, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I read this is a pretty good movie, folks. You should watch it. We